You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. There are psychological issues that arise before, during, and after organ transplantation. To address these issues comprehensively and proactively, many transplant centers are incorporating a psychological assessment as part of their protocol in evaluating patients being considered for transplantation. What are the psychological criteria for inclusion or exclusion for listing? And how are psychosocial issues managed for patients both before and after surgery? Joining us today to help shed some light on these questions is Dr. Audrey Krauss, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. Krauss, welcome to ReachMD. Oh, thank you very much. Can we start with your telling me a little bit about the role as psychologist within the transplant team? Yeah, so what we are is part of a very extensive process of evaluating patients for lots of different conditions so that we get to know them very well before we go ahead and list them for transplant surgery. So there's bone density scans, cardiac evaluations, lots and lots of tests of kidneys and other organ function, and the psychological evaluation is just one component among all of those as we try to understand where people are in their current status and to anticipate what kind of needs they'll have going forward into the surgery and then afterwards. I imagine that the evaluation process for someone who's going to undergo transplant can be quite complex. Can you walk me through that process, what a patient might undergo, and how you would address each stage of the process? I do not work with patients all the way through each step of the evaluation process. Our evaluation process probably spans two months to three months for people who are non-urgent, but it can be compressed into a number of days for people who have, for example, fulminant liver failure where they need to be transplanted very quickly. So my part of it is really just an isolated interview to characterize the patient's current mental status and psychosocial functioning to see what their functioning is at this time, what their resources are, and to make any recommendations for helping them to be more prepared to take on the burden, really, of caring for themselves after transplant. So how often would you meet with patients in order to figure out this out? Typically, I meet with people once just one time and do a thorough evaluation, making any recommendations for amelioration of situations that are identified during that time. Occasionally, I'll see people again in order to establish that they have made progress in the areas that were identified as problematic in the initial interview. But typically, folks go forward and manage things. The whole team is watching patients, and they're aware of what the recommendations were from the psychological assessment. So the whole team is watching. We've got a coordinator that's dedicated to that patient. They meet with the same hepatologist typically. We've got social workers who are also dedicated to these patients. And as a sort of a subunit of the full transplant team, the team for that particular patient will be monitoring all aspects of their care, including any problems identified from the psychological evaluation. And if problems are identified, what are the next steps that the team would take to actually address them? 
typically what we do, at least for psychosocial issues, is we refer them to resources in their local community for such matters as psychological problems. If they've got an untreated anxiety disorder or depression, or sometimes we even have people who've got untreated bipolar disorder or psychosis, we refer them to local resources because our patients are drawn from all over the state of Indiana, but also from Ohio and sometimes Illinois and Kentucky. So we want them to establish a relationship with providers in their local area so that there can be ongoing care through the pre- and then post-transplant process. And that is also very true of when we refer people for addictions treatment. We want them to establish a relationship with people who can help them stay sober and clean from drugs in their home area and not have to travel to Indianapolis to receive that kind of care. Are patients ever concerned about meeting you for the evaluation, that something might be uncovered which might be problematic for them to get the transplant? Absolutely. I think most people that I see have never talked to a psychologist before. They have media stereotypes, I think, in their heads pretty often. And they also may have concern about revealing the extent of their addiction or their mental health issues or their home chaos. You know, if they have a very disrupted home life, it's certainly something that we're going to pay attention to. Whether or not they're aware of that beforehand, I don't know for sure in each case, but we certainly pay attention to whether or not people have a nice, stable, and supportive home life because that's a critical aspect of post-transplant recovery and even getting through the pre-transplant phase. Do any of those factors come into play in determining where someone might be on the list and how soon they might get their transplant? It can. We have a policy in place that if someone has an active addiction issue, specifically in terms of alcohol and illegal drugs, they must have documented abstinence for six months prior to being eligible for listing and they have to have completed a good quality chemical dependency treatment program. So in the cases where people continually relapse or if they don't get to their treatment program or sort of don't finish their treatment program in a timely manner, it can, in fact, delay their listing for transplant. And when you say they have to be documented as having addressed their addiction, how specific does that have to get? Is it something verbal or is there actual testing? No, we do actual testing. We do random screens. We have a policy where we let people know when they come into the program that they'll be randomly tested for drugs and alcohol, and they'll get a phone call when they're at home. They've got four hours to get to a local testing facility, typically that's a hospital, and produce a sample to be evaluated. And that is for both alcohol and drugs? Yes. Well, let me ask you this. What are some of the other issues that might come up with respect to exclusion or inclusion criteria besides addiction issues? What are some other psychological issues? It's sort of psychological kind of behavioral is compliance. People who have difficulty organizing themselves as a medical patient raise real red flags for us. People who have difficulty managing their medications, taking them appropriately and accurately, that is something that we get very nervous about because that can impact the health of the graft after transplant. So we certainly pay attention to that. We pay attention to whether or not they come to appointments. Are they organized enough to know when their appointments are and have adequate transportation resources to get here. Those are the kinds of things that we certainly do look at before transplant because these can make a big difference afterwards. If folks can't get to the hospital reliably, that's something we need to know up front. And we usually don't try to exclude people because of these things. We try to work with them and come up with reasonable solutions. Also, we look at things like, do they have enough social support? They need somebody to help them during the first two or three weeks after transplant, and and it's critically important for them to build, if they don't have it right away, to build some kind of group, family members or friends, who are dedicating themselves for a short period of time to aiding them in the immediate post-recovery period. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, 
the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Joining me today is Dr. Audrey Krauss. We're discussing the role of psychological assessment and monitoring during the pre- and post-transplant phases. Dr. Krauss, you started talking about compliance. What are some other issues that the transplant team would have to address with respect to compliance after transplant? Sometimes we have to work with patients about issues that are not really psychological issues, but people try to be compliant with their medications. Sometimes they lose their Medicaid or Medicare or other forms of insurance, and we have to work with them very closely and carefully to help them get their anti-rejection medications. That's an issue that we certainly try to anticipate before transplant, but sometimes it comes up after transplant and through no fault of their own sometimes. Patients really struggle to be able to pay for the medications that are really quite expensive. Are you concerned at all? I mean, and I think you mentioned before the possibility of graft rejection, but how much do psychological components come into that? Is it more of just a medication compliance issue and how much of it is actually psychological versus just educational? I think that usually we do a very good job of educating people prior to transplant about the necessity of strict compliance with medication administration, especially of the anti-rejection medicines. And so folks that don't medicate themselves appropriately after transplant, there usually is a psychological reason for that. We have come across a variety of causes for non-compliance with anti-rejection administration from Acute depressions, when people are going through a divorce, sometimes they make an angry gesture. It almost looks like a suicidal gesture to stop their medications for a period of time. We often have a lot of difficulty with adolescents. People who are transplanted in their late teens or even in childhood, oftentimes when they go through adolescence, will really struggle with the idea that they're not, quote, normal or like the other kids, and they will just decide to stop taking their medications. Frankly, other people have more sort of frustration with routine-type personality styles, which may or may not be diagnosable as a personality disorder, but they may decide not to take their medications because they're simply tired of it. And that, I would think, would qualify as at least some kind of mental aberration because they say that they want to live, and yet they're not doing what they absolutely know is required in order to survive. What interventions do you take for children like that or, or for people in general who are having such difficult times adjusting to their lives after transplant? Mm. That's when we do actually engage in some therapy. Like, as I was saying before, typically prior to transplant, we refer ongoing therapy for folks to their local area. But if it is specifically an issue related to post-transplant compliance, they'll come see me or my colleague. We did hire another psychologist a couple years ago, and we will work with them to find out exactly what's going on. What are the barriers to taking their medications to look into if it is a psychological or their circumstance sort of reason, or if it's just a matter of error in thinking, sometimes they simply don't really understand. They seem to have forgotten what we told them prior to transplant about the necessity of compliance and how critically important it is to their welfare. So what we do is we sit them down and we look for what the barriers are and then try to figure out any kind of practical ways to overcome those, be it psychological or circumstantial. And do you feel like that works? Does it make a difference in how things go after transplant? It typically does. I'm very pleased to say that usually we can get people back on track, comfortably working again as a part of their medical team. I mean, one of the things that we try to do is establish a very cooperative relationship where they understand that our job is just to help them to stay alive and they don't feel that we're policing them or otherwise being punitive in any way. So a lot of times they come right back on board. So this is obviously something that's going on in your practice, in your area. Does having someone like you on the team, is that common across the United States? 
I think it's actually uncommon. My understanding is that Pittsburgh is using, I think they have a psychiatrist that they use to help evaluate patients. Many other centers, I believe, have social workers, but not a PhD-level psychologist. And are you conducting any studies or doing any research to see how your contribution makes a difference to outcomes with respect to transplant? I have not studied my own contribution, although I do enjoy doing research when I get the chance. We're looking right now, we've got two ongoing studies for post-pancreas adaptation, trying to understand what it's like for people who have been type 1 diabetics all their lives, then we give them a pancreas transplant, and a problem that they've struggled with for sometimes 30 years is suddenly gone. They are no longer diabetic, and they seem to have some adjustment issues afterwards, although certainly not all of them. We're trying to characterize what are the differences between the people who do struggle afterwards and those who don't. And another one of my favorite ongoing projects is to look at kidney donors. So not transplant recipients, but people who donate an organ. And kidney donors, what makes them want to donate? What do they get out of donating? I think those are interesting psychological questions. What do you think it will take to change other practices to make them more aware of the contributions that someone like you might make to the team to try to get this to be more common? I was curious if it was a cost issue. In other words, is it just something that there's just not enough money in the system to pay for that kind of therapy or to pay for that kind of contribution? Do you think it's an awareness issue or is it a cost issue? I don't think I can answer that question. I don't really know what's going on at the other centers in terms of their awareness or their cost or their budget considerations. I really don't know. I mean, at Pittsburgh, they've got psychiatrists, so that's got to cost them a lot more because a psychologist makes about a third of what a psychiatrist would make. Then how did you convince your local team here at Indiana University? How did you get started there? I got started because there was a gap in the psychiatric consult liaison service at this hospital about 20 years ago. And so about 18 years ago when I was still working full-time at the VA, I was coming over here and helping to do consults in a sort of an independent contractor basis. And we discovered mutually that I enjoyed doing this kind of work and that the transplant team was very happy with the kinds of information I was able to supply for them, especially in terms of characterizing what kinds of struggles patients are likely to have prior to transplant and then after transplant, anticipating those and addressing those proactively tended to cause our patient population to be a little bit higher functioning than they had been before. And so it was a very happy relationship that we decided to make full-time. Dr. Krauss, unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been discussing the role of psychological assessment and monitoring during the pre- and post-transplant phases, which is valued by organ transplant teams due to the important role psychologists can play in overall long-term success of transplantation. Dr. Krauss, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.